Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Richard. How are you? I'm fine. I'm um, having a a good day. I'm uh, I do a bit of a. Uh, I, I was just assembling something. I, I'm I also work in oil and acrylic, and I've been working with uh, Harley Davidson parts, <laughs> and I've been making I've been making I make lamps out of uh, musical instruments and Harley Davidson uh, leftovers. I do assemblages and lamps with Harley Davidson. And if you went on to my official uh, Facebook, you would see that. Or if you went on to my website, you would see a lot of my paintings and uh, you would also now see a lot of the lamps. So I've been doing an assemblage out there. I'm putting together a a new uh, Harley Davidson lamp to submit to a collage show. So uh, I keep myself busy doing that. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful. We just got back, my wife and I just got back from Kentucky. Uh, it was very, very cold out there, Chris, very cold. And we uh, made a film called The Silent Natural, which was just an astounding movie. It's coming out next spring around spring training. It's a baseball movie. And it's about the first deaf professional baseball player. And his name was William Hoy, H-O-Y. He had a lifetime average of 298. And he was instrumental in bringing in a lot of the signals that you see on baseball today. But it was a very unusual movie, and we were very fortunate to be part of it. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. But before we go into the future, do you mind if I bring us back to the past a little bit and talk about Quantum Leap? Tommy Thompson, that's why, you know, you... You know, the, you remember the, the series Sequest uh, with Roy Sider? Yeah, of course. He he ran that for a while, didn't he? Well, yeah. he was very involved with that. I think he did the pilot, and he recommended me for the uh, part of uh, Admiral Noyce. I mean, you know, Tommy Thompson's a great guy, and my favorite play when I, I did it with my wife was at, uh, the, the Death of a Salesman. My favorite film was a film that didn't get a lot of uh, attention, but I, I really enjoyed working with Norman Jewish and then so many people, was Fist with uh, Sylvester Stallone. And my favorite television appearance was on Quantum Leap. Okay. Uh, that, that's the way it goes with me. And Tommy, um, you know, is an important part of that, having written it and um, also you know, moving forward into becoming a producer, et cetera, et cetera. Quantum Leap, as I said, was my, I tried to get that, um, the, uh, I wanted the Quantum Leap outfit, but uh, Don, <laughs> Don Belisario, his son got that. That's really? what I wanted. I wanted, man, yeah. Uh, what I did get, though, there were two, um, oh, triangle hats. Yes, yes. And the, um, we're just cleaning out the uh, garage right now, and I came across uh, my triangle hat. And uh, I can give you my um, uh, my, e- my email later. And if anyone's interested in uh, purchasing that, they're <laughs> welcome to it. It's a beautiful thing, as you may remember. I just and saw the episode. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's the triangle hat that I wore, and it's the original. There are only two of them. I don't know who, I think probably Don Belisario's son 
is all grown up now and produces his own show. Okay, yeah, well, speaking speaking of that triangle hat, you're talking, of course, about your role as Mo Stein, and you got to appear on Quantum Leap not once, but twice. First as Mo, also known as Captain Galaxy, in the episode Future Boy, and then as Ziggy in the series finale Mirror, Mirror Image. Yeah, I'd like to talk about both appearances, but let's start with Future Boy. And uh, if you can just tell me how you got the role as Mo Stein and what it was like to be on set with Scott and Dean. Obviously, you already have a ton of stories. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I was in town over in Hollywood doing something. And my wife called me and she said, you've got to get right over to Universal or whatever. Um, casting this part on Quantum Leap. And I went over and I only had one chance to look at it. And I, I really... To be perfectly honest with you, it's it's the it's the, it's the most real part I ever played. Even though he was kind of had a few oddities about him, but in the sense of the closest human being, regular, easygoing guy with the children show, it was just wonderful. I got out there and I read a couple of times, and they cast me on the spot and they sent me to wardrobe right away because they had been having trouble casting that role, and. Um, you know, we we got along, uh, you know, Dean and Scott, we got along very, very well. And it was just a pleasure doing that show. And something you may not know, um, there's a producer out there, first name Jonathan, I can't recall it, but he watched it, he caught it, and he called me uh, oh, about three weeks later. He wanted to talk to me about, he had already talked to Don about making a series uh, about me. You know, when I go back to uh, Milwaukee with my daughter and uh, yeah, there was talk about making a series, of, uh, you know, starring uh, Captain Galaxy and uh, to go back to Milwaukee with his daughter. Uh, I can't remember who played a girl by the name of Deborah. And uh, he brought me in a few times. And I thought that would be great because I really would have liked to do something like that. As a matter of fact, what I would like to have done is actually pursue the point we're not just being a regular guy back there because you know the whole story you may recall is about he becomes a superstar uh, and he's building the time machine in the basement so that he can go back in time and get terrible reviews so he would not become a superstar because he missed the whole as you know anybody who works all the time and in film or on the stage, they really don't get to know their family. So the purpose of that was to go back in the time, get bad reviews, and uh, be able to spend time with his wife and children, which was just a, a marvelous premise. And I had known Don from years before, and um, I met Don first in New York when he was writing commercials. And I did a... Um, I did a beer commercial for him down in New Orleans. We got to know each other. And this was the first time we actually worked together. But it, it was, um, I miss it. I miss the part. I'm, and I miss being part of that particular time and uh, when they were doing those quantum leaps. It was a very personal thing to me. Even though I didn't get the Captain Galaxy outfit, I still have <laughs> the triangle hat. Well, it's amazing that they were thinking about doing a Mostein spinoff. I think that's news here on the Quantum Leap podcast. I don't know if you've told that story elsewhere, but I've certainly never heard it. And uh, it's 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 amazing to think the possibility, right? Oh, yeah. And this guy was, uh, he was an actor before, Jonathan. 
Oh, Jonathan Banks, B-A-N-K-S. Okay. Yeah, well, it's become a big thing. You know, I also, we played, uh, I played with the Enterprise Blues Band, which were five or six of us from Star Trek. I mm. did, um, I did uh, Voyager. I did Next Generation. We got together. We had a band, and they took us all over the all over the world. As a matter of fact, playing at all these various conventions, and we did. The band played at um, I think it was the last Quantum Leap convention. Oh, really? Um, you know, we played, and uh, there was a signing show and the whole thing. But the band played there, and it was an opportunity to get back together with uh, not only the producers and the creator. I didn't see Tommy there. Uh, it, it, it's it's um, it's a time in my life that, uh, you know, uh, I, I really enjoyed being part of something like that. It was a very real, because as you know, it, I, I used to do a lot of very light comedy. And after I, I did uh, China Syndrome, I started getting all of the power parts. And gotcha. I played, um, you know, General Omar Bradley and General This and heads of corporations. And that brought me back to you know, being a nice regular guy and <laughs> been on with the comedy, comedy with two years on uh, Seinfeld. Right. I played, a, I enjoyed playing that part too, because he was a little off center, but he, uh, he was just more or less a regular guy that didn't have it all together. And I enjoyed doing work. Let, let me ask you, let me get, dig a little bit deeper into that, because one thing I did notice about Mo, I mean, you played him, it's, it was kind of a combination of like wildly eccentric, Yet he was reasonable, and he was always very personable, and that's that regular guy aspect that you're talking about. Was it difficult to find yeah. that line to walk? Uh, did you discuss how kooky Mo should be with Tommy Thompson, who wrote the episode, no, or with the director, no, no. or did you just come uh, no, to that no. naturally? How no. did you How did you figure out how to make Mo kind of nuts, but really down to earth at the same time? Well, he was eccentric. Uh, he was eccentric. Um, and in the, the audition, that's what they saw. Evidently, nobody came in and gave the kind of audition I did because I, I was, I, I was in many instances, I was very childlike in the sense that seeing things and the enjoyment and wanting to go back in time, even though I was certainly bright enough, I'd lived in great hopes that I could build a time machine. And as a matter of fact, I, I came very close. Yes. <laughs> you, all, you almost leaped. Quantum leap. Right. Yeah. Right. Now I you have know, to, it was a, a lot of discoveries and, um, Scott made a lot of discoveries along with me and, um, they gave me free reign. I mean, um, I just, I, I remember what Scott said when I came on the show and after our first, uh, um, scene, he said, well, now, now we have a show. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, really nice. Because evidently they couldn't, they didn't quite find um, the person that could, it just, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been in the business now um, as a professional actor 65 years. And I, when I look at something, I don't look for eccentricity. I don't look to nail a lot of things on a roll. I look at the role and I look at the overall role. I look at the underlying role and I look at the sense and purpose of this man who was uh, not all that kooky, but to many people seemed kooky because he was obsessed with trying to get back to a time where 
Um, you know, he could spend time with his children who grew up with him. And no one, his daughter came along at the end there. There was a, a great, you know, a great renewal of love. Right. Because there was such a, and many families in America have gone through that. So they could associate with it. Well, I just, getting to sort of that, that truth of the character that you're speaking about, I mean, when you think about it, you were actually playing two characters in the episode, Mo and Captain Galaxy. Did you approach Captain Galaxy as a separate character that you had to play? Well, um, you know, Captain Captain Galaxy. First of all, it was you know uh, I was playing in my my own my own life, but uh, I also had you know the children's show, and um, you know the whole thing the whole thing in there about the. Uh, the children's show, but uh, it was just an extension of here's a guy like God bless him. We lost uh, Chuck McCann recently, and uh, Chuck was a you know very nice, pleasant going guy, but he did a lot of he had a great feeling for children's shows that he did in New York in his early his early career, and uh, you know having three children myself, it was. Um, I had, you know, I had a wonderful time doing the the, the children's show, and it, a lot of people you see they get um, they get caught up in day to day life. I think most people walk around with a mask. They hardly ever reveal themselves. They keep their feelings and their emotions tied down because everything that's whirlwind there's a whirlwind inside your mind, your soul, and your body. And this is a man, Mo who found an opportunity uh, through the show and also as being a day-to-day guy. I mean, you know, when they brought him in, he, he actually became Captain Galaxy. He actually became the man. He didn't start out that way, but he came the, became the man and this great enthusiasm of going back and the enthusiasm with the children, they blended together. It was a blend. There was nothing purposeful. Um, I did not sit down and plan it. It was a natural growth. You know, you have to, um, you go through all this thing about what you learn. And there's a famous uh, Boleslavsky, uh, a, a Russian uh, director and so forth. And he said, once you've studied the whole thing, and once you're pretty certain about what you're going to do, comes opening night, throw it all away and go out there and just be that character. And every time I work, I'm the kind of actor who just, I like to become the person I'm playing. I just let it, let it go. Let it come to me. And that's how it came to me. I didn't, you know, I, I, it, myself and Captain Galaxy created each other and we became two people within the body of one Hmm. or the mind of one. Well, speaking of Russians, you uh, evoked the name of a Russian director, but I want to talk about a Russian that you actually played on Quantum Leap. Do you mind if we move on to Mirror Image? You can go, oh, Mary Image, that was fun because, um, you know, that bar there, that was actually Don Belisario's father's bar back in Pennsylvania. And he, and he had a lot of his, um, quite a few, I think his brother was there and several other people were there. And he had a, he brought back a lot of the characters from the various shows. And he called me long while he was writing that, make sure I was going to be available uh, to play Ziggy. And... Uh, I think uh, I think James Whitmore Jr. I think he was in the first and the last show. He was a producer and a director. I think he is still active, but 
he brought people back for specific purposes. Well, let me talk to you about that, because even though Captain Galaxy is referenced directly in the episode, uh, you played Ziggy Zigovanovich, I can't even say the name, you played Ziggy, and that was such a complete departure from most Stein. So when you when you came... Did you? How much did you know going in uh, what the role would entitle and what it would be like? You you said that Don had called you months beforehand to make sure that you would be available because obviously he wanted to bring you back to make you a part of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I did, I, I thought about it, and uh, you know he's he, he's from a coal mining town, coal miner, and I remembered all of the various nations that came to this country to work in coal mines and all the various accents and backgrounds and so forth and so on. And uh, that's how the accent came. I I did not work on the accent. Uh, While I was running through it, it just came. It it was a good fit. Now the accent, you gotta be careful with an accent because you mustn't let the accent take over the part that you're playing. And you mustn't just be playing an accent. When you're playing an accent, you shouldn't even be aware of playing an accent and uh, planned it or try to get all of the accents 100% correct. And I just felt when I, uh, that that was the thing that led me into the character. Because I was thinking of the coal miners coming from all over the world and the various nations. And all of a sudden, my God, I said, my God, I said, he, he uh, he's first, he's a, uh, you know, he came from another country, and this and I started. Then all of a sudden, I got this uh, kind of Slavic, Slavic sense of the character, and there, there was there was a joy. He also had a joy. He wasn't the brightest man in the world. He didn't have a big education, but he seemed to enjoy what he was doing. He enjoyed talking to people uh, all around him, and. Uh, you know, he brought that back in there, too, as kind of a backhanded joke because of Ziggy. But he was another very natural guy, but he was just from another place in another country. And uh, I had a wonderful time being being part of that. I, you see, that's the thing about ensemble playing. Um, when you work with a group of actors, either in a play, a film, or television, uh, you have to be a team. You have to be an ensemble. You have to be willing to play and see what adventures you go through. And, and within this uh, rehearsals, you don't have very many, believe me, <laughs> one or two. You get together, you know, with a bunch of people you might never have worked with and you create these things. But wh- once you hit something, then you get this ensemble. Once you get the ensemble, then the, the, the film or so forth takes care of itself. But everybody has to be willing to join in and not step back. They, and that always comes when you work with what I call people that were originally on the stage, that studied that way and were willing to take risks. See, when you're in rehearsal for four weeks in New York for a show off Broadway or on, you have the opportunity to try out your character in various ways. You can try, I always call it, you go through the aria period, you go through this until finally you put all the pieces back together again and become the character. And that's what the four week rehearsal is. The four week rehearsal is to create an ensemble, something that makes sense, something that people will enjoy because it's coming from one source 
And in television, you don't have that kind of liberty. You don't have that kind of time. I come in to do Captain Galaxy. We ran it once or twice, and we shot it. You can't come in the next day and say, hey, I have an idea about this. I'd like to go back. They can't do that. It's too expensive. So the only thing you have to really do, like working on Seinfeld, when you work in television, uh, you really should be ready, set to go. Actually, you should be perfect. And hopefully you're playing with actors that have a strong sense of background and have a sensitivity. Maybe an actor leads you in a different direction with his character. Maybe you lead the other one. And finally, all of these individual people that you've never worked with, they come together as a whole. And when you have a, a film like that, you have a good film. And that's why Captain Galaxy, you know, Captain Galaxy came very, very close to uh, one of the, uh, an Emmy nomination because there was a lot of hoopla about that particular show that Tommy wrote and myself and other people were in. But uh, for one reason or another, it, um, which I, I don't want to go into right now, I, I know that Don got behind it. He took a whole page in Variety and this and that and so forth and so on and got a lot of calls from the Emmy people, but it just never happened. You know, even as an ensemble show, which it should have, because it had a great, great ensemble, especially Captain Galaxy. Captain Galaxy, I got a lot of calls. It was a very unique show. And I, I'm just uh, um, not in an egotistical way. I'm not flattering myself. I just consider it a privilege that I had the opportunity, opportunity to be part of a show like that. And Scott Bachley, you, you couldn't work with a better actor because he plays the game. He, he, he's an ensemble. He's got a background as an actor and he's right there with you. The whole point, it's called being in the moment. And we, you have to get into the moment. Like Captain Galaxy, when he slowly went for this whole thing, he got into the moment with the children's show and he believed every single thing he said. You have to believe it. If you don't believe it, the audience isn't going to believe it. And if the character that you're working across from doesn't believe it, it's not going to work. And a lot of actors, you know, I, I do master classes. And I usually start with, uh, you know, the actors of the drama department. I ask them how many out there want to be movie stars. I get a lot of hands. And then I say, how many want to be actors? Because you have to work to discover who and what is within yourself so that once you look at the text, you know, you'll know what to do. I mean, a lot of young actors today, they want to take the elevator. They don't want to take the stairs. They don't want to do the work. You know, everybody wants to be a movie star. They don't want to study. It's, it's just a shame. It really is. And, uh, there's just not that many, everything's a revival in New York. And there are a lot of good television shows on now though. A, a really a, a good slew of them. Yeah, tons. Well, if we can just uh, linger on mirror imagery, I have one more question. Um, because you're talking about that ensemble atmosphere that you were able to build both in Future Boy and in Mirror Image when you came back. But when they were shooting Mirror Image, they they knew that it might be the final episode of the show. Was So was the atmosphere on set any different because of that? Were you guys cognizant that this might be it? For Quantum Leap, anyway. Well, no, because evidently, you know, before, my, as my understanding, you might know better than me, I think the show was canceled four times before. The show was canceled four times. Then they made up their mind to bring it back. 
we looked at the last show as a place that we were passing through to go somewhere else. And that's why he brought some characters from the other shows. Passing through and, you know, it was kind of left up in the air as though it might be, you know, brought back again. But um, I didn't look at it as, um, uh, because that's not my job as an actor. I played Ziggy, so I didn't look at it as a final show. And he, you know, because Ziggy wouldn't be. But if, when I stepped back as a, a person or a, an actor, um, I thought, well, maybe they'll bring it back. But if it is a final show, it certainly has a wonderful cast. And it was a privilege to work with everybody. And it was, it was quite different. It was quite different. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm proud to have had the opportunity to have been a part of uh, Quantum Leap. Well, uh, if you'd like, I'd like to broaden out to some of your other work. I mean, you've had such a long career. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd like to focus on some of your more iconic genre roles. And what immediately came to my mind when I knew I was going to be talking to you was um, the alien overlord John in V, the TV miniseries, because I think that's the first thing I remember seeing you in. And it was such a television mm -hmm. event. Can you tell me yeah. what it was like to work on that? Well, first of all, it got the biggest numbers that NBC ever got. And it was a privilege to work with the creator who was also the director, Ken Johnson. They offered me that role. There's a story that goes with that. And of course, I, 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 I accepted, but I said, I have to check with my production manager first, because I was doing a regular job at that time with Bill Shatner on T.J. Hooker. Right. I was on T.J. Hooker. So I spoke to, I never bothered with the agents. I spoke to the production manager because they wanted me on a day that I was working on T.J. Hooker. And I certainly wanted to do V. So I, I spoke to the production manager and he called the production manager for V. And they worked it out. So in one day in the morning, I did my first scene, a long, a long speech, not the one with the, uh, the spaceship, but the, 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 this, a long speech to the world in the morning. And I had my, my wardrobe was actually ready for me. I went right from there over to Warner's uh, and I uh, changed into my wardrobe. And after lunch, I did T.J. Hooker. <laughs> and the Yeah, that's the way that happened. I, I did uh, V in the morning and T.J. Hooker in the afternoon. And I was able to do that because they didn't need me in V again for another two weeks. And we only had two more weeks in T.J. Hooker. So I was able to say yes to this great... Um, 10-hour miniseries, they're again working with wonderful people. You know, it's like Jane and, uh, and Mark Singer and uh, people like that. It was just a wonderful experience. And uh, I, just, I just enjoyed it. And the whole thing was, you know, lo looking human like that and not looking like, you, you know, monsters that uh, we were able to convince the people on this particular planet that they we were their friends, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera. And then finally the great review. But uh, and uh, Ken, uh, when he came along, he wanted to do another uh, miniseries. He actually before that he wanted to make a film. He had a film. We you know he asked all of us and we said sure we're available. 
And he tried to make it into a, a motion picture film, and there was no acceptance. And then he wrote it again um, as another miniseries. They wouldn't accept it. And then when it came along as a series, again, he submitted his idea of the script, and they, they turned him down. And they, they See, they made a big mistake when they went on. Uh, they did it as a series much later. I do recall First that. First yeah. they should have yeah. yeah, they should have had Jane Badler and Mark Singer come back in, the two opposing forces. That would have brought back in the entire following that we had created when we did it years before. You would have had people that were 10, 20 years older that would have said, oh, characters from the original show. And they should have, uh, you know, just continued it that way. And they didn't. They didn't capture an, or- an audience. And they had turned down Ken, who had created the thing, when he turned in his script. And I, well, you see, everybody, everything had changed in 20 years in the motion picture business. Everything was accelerating. Uh, the people that were involved at that time had not been involved in the original V. Uh, it was, you know, much younger, much younger people wanting to make their own decisions and uh, so forth and so on. So it was a shame that he didn't have the opportunity either to make it as a film or to have done the repeat. But all of the actors that were on that were top notch. And it was a 10 hour miniseries and it was it was an enormous hit. Yeah, well, I think it's because it was very high concept. And I want you to remember something, John. Just remember this now, Chris. We're your friends. <laughs> I don't believe you. I'm running away and I'm hiding. My, I'm hiding my pet rat too. But, uh, well, no. the whole thing about that too. You, every actor who uh, I didn't have to eat any gophers or anything, but you know we had to have be fitted by um, an ophthalmologist or whatever for these uh, contact lenses. Right. And those lenses at that time were the way they were years ago. They covered the entire eye. Otherwise, they would have floated. A lot of the actors had trouble floating, and they had to keep shooting the scenes. The makeup on that was three and a half hours for me. When you were in full full lizard regalia? or Yeah, the, for the face and everything, to, to make the rug real of the lizard thing. Right. And if she had, they had a little space. Uh, you know, they built half my face, and they did the rest with latex so it looked real. So when she pulled it down, I was exposed. But if, if she hadn't got it, they would have missed a whole half day shooting because it would have taken an hour to take to uh, take it off. And I would have had to come in the next day and do another three and a half hours as I did on, um, uh, as the Klingon and next uh, generation. That well, was, I, I, um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that maybe. too. Yeah. Um, cause I'd venture to say that most of our listeners are also Star Trek fans and you have the distinction again of playing two Trek roles. You were the Klingon warrior liqueur in next gen and a DS nine crossover. It was called birthright. And you also had that recurring role as Admiral Owen Paris on Voyager. So what was it like to get into the latex and tap into that inner Klingon? Oh, it was just, um, well, we had to get in about three thirty or four in the morning. You have to come to mind, you know, people come up. I had to learn how to sing in Klingonese, too, because I sang in that. <laughs> Klingon opera, I hope. No, no. <laughs> it started out as a, child, a children's a baby song and some older people around. In the end, it actually was a warrior's song. But um, And the, the show originally was when Worf was going to go back to find his father. 
who had been captured. You're not supposed to be captured. You're supposed to come home on your shield. You're supposed to be dead. But he met, you know, I, I played a very good friend of his father who knew him as a child and explained that they, we had been knocked out by something and this and that, and we were captured by the Romulans. So he certainly uh, couldn't have stayed that war. So he went back. And you, you, have, to, you have to approach every role in a different way. And I, I just uh, uh, approached it. Oh, also, I had to go out and be fitted for teeth. I had to get a whole new set of teeth. And, uh, you know, to learn to uh, re-talk. And you essentially have to find where you stand in that. And I was a leader at that time, as was Worf, and the Romulan leader at that particular time. And you had to live in disgrace because you were still alive and you you and the rest of the Klingons that were on that planet captured were not, not able to get away. Uh, you should have actually rose up and given your lives away, even though you couldn't get off the planet. And what happened toward the end, the young Klingons that were birthed there, and some were, uh, they discovered that they were great warriors. They didn't know that. And they were all very, very angry about it, terribly angry. So I figured that that particular generation that discovered their warrior background would probably rise up and have a rebellion against the Romulans, even from as being captives. But actually we were prisoners there and uh, he couldn't, he, you know, he would have stayed if his father was there, but he had to get back. He went back to the ship. And I just approached it as a, an understanding man with a certain amount of wisdom that he was only, he was built to fight, to kill, but he was not some kind of a monster. He did it. Well, you might, you have to look like the Spartans. What the Spartans did, they, they let a, let the child be with the mother and the father for the first 10 years of their lives. Then after that, they were trained as warriors. Some made it, some didn't. But after that, that was their whole purpose in life was to be on the offensive or when needed to go to war. And I thought a lot about that as a Klingon. And that didn't mean they were crazy nuts out of their minds. It just meant uh, that they were strong men. They were capable, uh, capable of defeating forces much larger than theirs because of all of the preparation and the training that they had. And it was the same playing, uh, playing uh, Lacour this particular Klingon, it was wonderful being in part one and part two and uh, being, a, being a part of that uh, situation. I always start with the premise, you know, you say to yourself, we have so many of these recreations today and they're mechanical, monsters. They're all monsters or killers. You have to look back on uh, Bela Lugosi. You have to look back on Boris Karloff. And you have to look back on a lot of these parts and they didn't really have to, the way they looked and what they were was the most frightening thing. You know, they, did, they didn't um, have to pretend to be fierce or anything else. They were just frightening characters. And, uh, you know, even as Frankenstein, if you, if you may have remembered in a few of those scenes that 
when he and the child were looking at a beautiful little flower that were growing, there was some sensitivity in that man. And what it is like today, a lot of people in our country are repulsed. Well, I'll tell you, that film I did about the uh, the deaf, first deaf baseball player, he was referred to as a freak because he couldn't hear. And 30, 40 years ago, there was, there, there was nothing for handicapped people. Anybody in a wheelchair, anybody that was crippled, they were ignored by the public. They, they were just considered non-existent. They were, they, there, was a, there was a school in Boston called the Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children. And they were, you know, other within their own colony, outside, people, you know, didn't want them around because they were cripples. And, you know, just, and then when you see the sensitivity about these people and the sensitivity about even the monster Frankenstein, and even in somehow, uh, like, I saw the play on Broadway with Frank Langella. He did a wonderful job. And there were moments of understanding, even though he was a vampire. But you don't look for the worst in the character first. You look in why the character is what it is. You look at the background. You, you, because if you play it straight down, with you, you have to have curves. You have to have a little fog. You have to find out things that are, are unexpected that come out of the character. Otherwise, the character is just dull. Because the character has a personality, and it could, it's a limited personality. But, you know, like when Worf went there, he had great, even though he was the warrior that he was, he had great compassion looking for his father. He wanted to know where his father was, what happened to his father. You know, he, so that meant that he had some kind of family feelings, even though he could turn around and kill 20 people. You know, he was not insane. He was not a maniac. He was just a person placed in the body of a Klingon that, like a Spartan or anything else, was a savage. Just his his heritage, right? Yeah. That's your heritage. That's the way you're brought up. You don't know anything else. That's the way you're brought up. Well, you got... And, you know, um, you have to think. I think you have to, you know, maybe I do too much. I don't sit around and, you know, work and work and work, but I, I consider especially in rehearsal in the theater. That's why the first week, if you have a good director, he lets you go in every direction you go. You, know, you might be totally wrong because as soon as you start, some directors, they want immediately want results. And what results do? They destroy creativity. You have to grow into the character. Now, when you're in a play, you have a little bit of time to grow into the character. But when you come on television or in a film, you have to have a pretty 90% idea of who the heck you are. Big difference. Big difference. Well, let me ask you, though. You had a recurring role as Owen Paris on Voyager. And since you were able to play that character a few times, did you find that you were able to grow into the role of Paris a little bit more as you like to do? Yeah, I had uh, I did six episodes. And what I grew into... My son and I, Robert Duncan McNeil, did not get along very well as the characters in play before he went off into um, space as he did. Right. But as time went by and the absence of each other, we began to think in a different way. You know how sometimes you blow steam off 
and you, you never get a chance to apologize or to sit down and talk to somebody. And at the very, very end, when we looked at each other, when he came through the mole hole there, or whatever that, I can't, I think that's what they call it. <laughs> I think it was a transwarp conduit. There, I'm not sure. We, we were actually to be able to talk. We had some more compassion and understanding about each other. You can't just play a character from A to B. As an actor, you, you must know the whole alphabet. Or like a typewriter touching the keys, you must know through experience and through study and technique and having the opportunity like I did of having done, I did a tremendous amount of community theater. I apprenticed. I did summer stock. I did uh, winter stock. I did nickel and dime road shows and, and shows in New York. And that game, and they all small parts to begin with. And I grew into larger parts. A lot of the actors today don't have those opportunities because uh, it's too expensive to uh, have summer stock now. It's too expensive to, uh, to send unless there's big, big stars on the road. There are fewer opportunities for actors, and especially the actors that come out of Carnegie or Yale or Northwestern. Uh, the, the opportunities aren't there. To uh, the apprenticeships, I mean, I had to work and I got a junior membership in Actors' Equity in my senior year of high school. But I had to work another two years before I became a principal actor. When I went to New York, I never got any big parts. I got what they call uh, under fives at the beginning. They didn't give me any more than five lines. That's how you started. You, you grew. But people today, most people, they just want to jump in. And I mean, hell, if you wanted to be a carpenter, you have to apprentice, even with your job, you know, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of knowledge of knowing what you're doing and what to ask. People are just in too much of a damn hurry today. You've got to learn your craft. That's the first thing. And until the, until five years ago, I used to go back to class every year for four to six weeks. Or if I couldn't get back to class, my wife and I used to do my wife, Patricia, who was also an actress who started very, very young at the Alley Theater in Texas, we always went back together or we did a play together. And she studied. People, you know, they, I don't know. That's, you can't just go out and take an engine apart in an automobile unless you know what the heck you're doing. But the most important thing is you have to know how to put it back together again so you as the actor will be the engine that will move the plot forward. That's the way I look at it. Wow. Well, I mean, you've been on stage, you've been on screen, you've been on television, and like you said, you've been acting for 65 years. Just let loose. What has been your favorite role or roles, whether it be stage, screen, or otherwise? Well, I know exactly what that is. When my wife and I did, as I told you, uh, Arthur Miller's play, uh, The Death of a Salesman, playing Willie Loman. And in the film that didn't get much viewing at all, it's become a cult film, was Fist which is the uh, uh, movie about the, the founding of the Teamsters Union, starring uh, St Sylvester Stallone, and, you know, Boyle was there. There are a lot of very good actors in it, and I had a very fine part. And uh, on television, it was Barnum Lee. Hmm. And, um, you know, I would say because of, uh, and after that, after I did all those heavies and everything, it was hard to get back into comedy. They didn't, they say, oh, we don't, we didn't know you did comedy. I, I, you know, you can't say, well, look, I'm an actor. I do what you asked me to do. Like comedy is part of the package you bring into the game. 
You know, there's, there's no, I mean, it's, there's the story about the, uh, the old actor who's dying. And he said, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's the old. Yeah, that that. That's yeah, yeah, if you don't, if you don't have the, if you don't have timing, if you don't have timing in comedy, you don't have anything, and you can't change any lines or any words or any sentences because the writers, and it's the same on Star Trek or any of those shows, they work for hours to make those things make sense to the next thing that's coming up, and. Um, there are a few instances where I paraphrase, but not on those shows. Sometimes they want every period, and I can understand why. When I, I, I've worked with Betty White several times. I played her boyfriend on uh, Golden Girls. I played her husband on Everwood, and her most recent comedy show. I, I can't remember. I did ten episodes of that. But it, it's a, it's a sense that you build. You build a sense. Of, of what to do. And uh, if actors do nothing else, they should go and take a couple of technique classes. And I tell every actor, or every, I, it's so hard, so many people come to me and want advice. And I tell them within a 55 mile or 50 mile range of where they're living to find any community theater that they can and do as many plays as they can. And then to study, you don't have to go to four years. You can go to New York and you can take a two-year course at the American Academy of Dramatic Art at Sandy Meisner. Learn your craft. Some actors get lucky, you know. They jump in and they learn. Some actors have never studied. It's 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 a very personal thing. Mm. Very personal. That Betty White show you were referring to was called Off Their Rockers, which was a comedy series. Oh, yeah. That was fun because uh, we just assaulted people with, Improv, right? <laughs> and that's the reason I did it. Another reason I did it is it got me out of the house. I like to get out of the house. You know, when I did that film, you know, I was I was lucky enough to get into one of the biggest hits that got a, a nominated for the Academy. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I was in Get Out. Right, get you had out. a pivot, kind of a pivotal role in that. They called right? me later. Oh yeah, I was the guy that started the whole uh, the whole thing, the whole situation. <laughs> right. So. You know, but that 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 had that had humor, a lot of uh, r racial things in it, uh, a lot of little tips and hints. It it was made for four and a half million dollars and made over two hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah, and won the there Oscar. There were no movies. Yeah. yeah, and for the best original script by uh, uh, Peel, wonderful man to work for, who directed it, and their entire company. Uh, Bloomhouse, and they called me and my wife, and we worked in another film for them recently called The Oath, which is about the time when they wanted people to sign a loyalty oath. And uh, and then I worked on Shameless. I, I, I had a wonderful time recently, and th this this other film. So, you know, they still call me. I'm gonna. My wife and I are gonna do a film up in. Uh, Oh, up in Syracuse in January in the nice warm weather. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to play. We're going to play Grandma and Grandpa. But you know, it's um, it keeps you going. Uh, uh, I mean, we do other things. We have a lot of other things we do in our lives. You know, we're doing more traveling now. But we each have. My wife is uh, is is writing a memoir, which is quite good. She she's written already close to uh, well over a hundred pages. That's great. I work with my art. Well, maybe in the next two or three months, I'm going to begin uh, 
coaching actors. Okay, well, you be, you began the interview telling us about your art. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, what what drives you to create what you do? It sounded like you were talking about making some kind of sculptures or or what, and is there someplace I online that do. people can well, see I that? Started, I went back to class of seven years um, every Saturday that I could. Andy Prime told me about an old friend of mine from over 60 years ago, a fine actor, and I went back and I studied. I, st- I started with oils, went to acrylic. Then I went into collage. Then I got an idea one day of a, a lamp. And I got some brass instruments and I, uh, I built a couple of lamps. And uh, I make lamps out of various things because it gives me an opportunity to use my hands. And um, I work on collage. And the wonderful thing about that, the most important thing, is when you're in class or you work, I have a studio, or you're in your studio, you do a tremendous amount of thinking, and then it's very difficult. It oftentimes doesn't come out quite the way you think it will. But once you start working on it, it brings forth a tremendous amount of serenity. Because you're there, just you and the canvas, or you're there with the collage, and every once in a while, uh, well, people, um, one of my earlier paintings, the way it all started, really, uh, was a, a, a Japanese sunset. I sent a copy of it to my daughter in uh, the law office in New York. And one of the lawyers came in and said, I love Japanese painting. Who did it? She said, my father. And he, she said, does he have the original? She said, would he sell it? So uh, my, she called me and I called him and uh I told him I'd have to speak to the gallery guy and so forth and so on. I gave him a price. He said, I'll put the check in the mail, send it to me. Everybody finds when they look at a painting or a piece of artwork, it's very personal. I had another guy did a bunch of uh, horses. Uh, from the beginning of time, the way the horse looked into the present time. And right smack in the middle was a red horse. And this fellow who... Uh, He's retired, but he was the head of the American Dental Society. He saw it, and he said, I'm going to buy, I want to buy that because my son's coming into the business, and I had made up a story uh, when he was very, very young about a red horse, and I want to put this in his office. So, you know, that's the way it is. I, I, I just I do what I do. You see, if I had started art, I did a little bit in New York at the Art Students League, but not a lot. My acting was my main focus. But if I had, you know, chosen to do something else, that's what I would have chosen. But you've got to start very young. I don't have, um, I do whatever I want to do. Most artists have to do things so somebody can look at them and say, oh, yeah, that's a Warhol. Oh, yeah, that's a de Koenig. Oh, yeah, that's a Rembrandt. I'm very eclectic. I just paint whatever I feel like painting or I make whatever I feel like making. And I didn't start. And to this day, really, uh, it, it's it's not for co- commerce or for sale, uh, for um, to sell, but uh, because it pleases me. Uh, and, you know, if somebody wants to buy it, I have a show once in a while. Fine, I can go out and buy some more paint or some more canvas or this or that. And it gives me great pleasure and joy. And, and um, it makes me feel really good that somebody else feels the same way about my work. Well, that's a great place to be in, isn't it? 
and you don't have to answer to anyone. I think that's that's just an amazing thing that you, you, you get to do what you want to do, and you're certainly keeping just as busy as ever, it seems to me. You had mentioned The Silent Natural as being in post-production. Any idea when we might be able to see that? Oh, I can tell you that, yes. That's going to be, well, you see, being a baseball film, it missed. They have to put the music in. It's going to come out next year, uh, spring training, baseball spring training. The, the Silent Natural. The Oath maybe will come out in four or five months. I would imagine that's coming from the same producers uh, that produced uh, Get Out. And um, you have my website there? No, we can put that up on our website for all of our listeners to check out. What is the uh, website, sir? RichardHerd.com. Oh, that's easy to remember. That's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. And my Facebook is... Um, facebook.com slash official Richard Hurd. We will make sure to include both of those links on our website for everybody to check out. They'll, they'll see several things on there. They'll see my paintings, my collage, my lamps, and I also design jewelry out of bone. Hmm. I have a friend who makes large bone pieces and I get the scraps and I, uh, I, I design jewelry as well. I just, just keep on keeping on, Mister Hurd. That's a, that's. Yeah, well, you got to you know you got to keep your mind going, and uh, you know you may not have the strength you had as a young man, but you just do the best you can. Now I'm going to ask you one final question: Was the Mostein spinoff was he going to be successful in his time travel, or was it going to be a straight drama? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, because he had found his, his daughter came back to him. Right. And she came back to him with love, as you remember. And she was taking him home to Milwaukee. And um, they were going to be together and maybe on a small television show, he would do a children's show. Maybe he would go, maybe he would go to the library on Saturday and, you know, have a gathering of young children and their mothers. Maybe he would read children's books to them, you know, things of that sort. You see, um, he, that's a way of finding serenity, you know, volunteer for something that gives you pleasure, volunteer for something where you can really, there are a lot of people out there that need help, physical help, you know, just to take somebody for a walk, get something at the store, you know, and you have these things like meals on wheels. You have so many people out there that are doing that, but Mo would go back and he would be with his daughter and he would meet some, he would meet her children. He would be a grandfather. And even though having missed his own children growing up, he would be able to be around the grandchildren. So that's a huge plus. So that would have, I thought it would have made a a good, a wonderful um, series because I certainly would have enjoyed doing it. But there are so many things, you know, Chris, in life that just don't work out. Yeah. But we just have to, you know, move forward. May I speak to your audience for a moment? Please, please do. I was going to ask if you had any message for the leapers out there. Yeah, for for the listeners, you know, there are good times, there are bad times, and talk is very easy, and people giving you a little thing to read. But uh, you know, it's it's difficult oftentimes to find serenity within yourself because jobs or what's going on in the world. But you, 
you have to find something that gives you a certain amount of personal pleasure. Find something that gives you personal pleasure. Find something, even meditation, that gives you serenity. Uh, you might want to go to a museum and just look at some paintings and, and, and find serenity. You might find serenity through your, your spirituality, your faith. Um, but it's an important thing. You, today, we have to find serenity within ourselves. And it's not an easy thing. It's not a magic thing. You know, you, you have to really work at it. And I have my good days and I have my bad days. But I have to tell you, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because my wife and I just two days ago celebrated our 38th anniversary. And I must say, in my lifetime, it, it's been the greatest thing. I'm a lucky guy. And we met on a Christmas Eve through an acting friend of mine. And uh, I, you know, find somebody that you can get close to. Hopefully find somebody that loves you and you can love and find the big thing is find peace of mind because you mustn't let things live rent free in your head because every time you think it goes right, take, it takes advantage of your present time thinking about the past. You know, the past is gone. It's easy to say, but we have to deal with it every day by dismissing it and no matter what it is, you don't have to do anything great. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to sell. It, it's a very personal thing. And if I could wish anything, you know, I would really wish all of us out there today to try to find love in their lives, serenity, and somebody to share their life with. And to all you fans and folks out there, I had a great, great interview. Take care and have a beautiful life. Or as... Joe Campbell would say, which is very important, follow your bliss. Well, that is a wonderful sentiment, Mr. Hurd, and thank you so much for joining us on the Quantum Leap Podcast. 